An enormous amount of time, money, effort, and good intentions goes into scientific research, but all too often the results aren't effectively communicated. The goal of Beyond the Jargon is to make academic research more accessible to a wider audience. I'm Dr. Karen Albright. I hope you'll join me for a series of conversations designed to translate scientific research and to explore from a data-driven perspective the impacts of child abuse on our psychological, family, healthcare, criminal justice, and social systems. Come with me beyond the jargon. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of Beyond the Jargon. I'm Karen Albright, and I am so pleased to be welcoming Heather Tossig to the show today. Heather is a professor at the University of Denver's Graduate School of Social Work and an adjunct professor at the Kemp Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Child Abuse and Neglect at the University of Colorado. Heather's research focuses on developing, testing, and implementing prevention programming for young people with child welfare involvement, and she developed and directs the Fostering Healthy Futures Program, which is an evidence-based mentoring and skills training program, and it's now being disseminated through community-based organizations. Heather serves on several national review panels, as well as on the research board of the National Mentoring Resource Center, and she served on Colorado Governor Ritter's task force on foster care. Heather is an awardee for her research from the International Society for the Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect, and she recently completed a Fulbright Scholar Award in Wales. Lucky her. Heather, welcome to the show. We're so pleased to have you. Thank you. I'm so pleased to be here. I really appreciate you inviting me to have this conversation with you. Great. Well, I am delighted that we get to chat with you and learn about your work because all of your work that I am aware of is really interesting. And in fact, I'd love to start our discussion today by letting our audience get to know you a bit, the person behind the science, beyond the jargon. So how did you come to this kind of work? Yes. Well, as you said in the introduction, most of my professional life has been spent with colleagues who are huge contributors to developing and testing and now implementing a program called Fostering Healthy Futures for young people who've been involved in the child welfare system. And I came to this work um, back in high school, actually. Um, when I was in high school, I started volunteering at a shelter for children who were either on their way into or out of foster care in Tucson, Arizona, called Casa de los Niños. And it really was my first experience at the age of 16 and working with young people who'd experienced a lot of adversity and instability in their young lives. And I was really struck. I worked there during high school and then in a summer in college in how these young people were functioning so well despite adversity. And so I know this term resilience made some folks feel that it's really overused, but it was really my first exposure to young people overcoming adversity. Um, not to suggest that there wasn't lasting impacts of trauma that affected obviously behavioral and emotional functioning. And then in college, I also had the experience of working at a camp for young people also involved in the child welfare system, this time on the East Coast called Wadiko. And the bond that the children in this camp-like setting formed with each other was really powerful. And, and both of these experiences have been instrumental in the development of this Fostering Healthy Futures program, which has a group component to it as well. And then I volunteered during my graduate training in clinical psychology as a mentor. And what I could do as a mentor with young people 
really different than from what I could do in the 50 minute hour. It was much more community based and engaged and the same, you know, boundaries weren't there. And so this idea of mentoring as an important source of support for young people as they were growing up was sort of lodged at that point. And then to really fully develop the program, met with a lot of folks who, you know, have really important input to give. So we ran 12 focus groups with all kinds of constituents and met with community leaders. So all of that work led me to the development of this program and the research that I think we're going to talk more about today. That's fascinating. What an incredible narrative and trajectory that you just described. There's so much I would love to ask about it, but let me just ask questions sort of about the origin of that interest. So you said you started volunteering in high school. What made you go that direction? A lot of high school students aren't really thinking in that way. Well, I do have to give my mom credit. My mom started, (laughs) I think, first volunteering to support parents whose children had been removed from their homes. And so there was like maybe a parent mentoring program in part. And so she was doing that volunteer work. And I'd always been interested in working with young people and done a lot of babysitting and camp counseling. And so there were opportunities to volunteer in this shelter and I signed up. So I can't tell you exactly, but even at an early age, I was really interested in, you know, working with young people who had experienced adversity. I love that. That's very admirable. And so you've described very beautifully this trajectory, this arc of your work and how it sounds like it both deepened and broadened over time with different experience. So how would you say overall that you would describe the gist of what you're most interested in studying? What does it ultimately come down to? Yeah, no, it's a great question. You know, I'm really interested in the development of innovative what I would call contextually sensitive. So, you know, really tailored to the population's prevention and intervention programming for young people. And, you know, I teach a number of the research-based classes in the graduate school of social work, like evidence for practice and intervention development and program evaluation. And while we certainly need to be implementing evidence-based practices and or programs, there is so much room for the development of more efficacious or effective programs for any social problem that we're trying to address, right? And I think a lot of times programs or interventions or therapies are developed sort of in the ivory tower and not in conjunction with community or input from those who we seek to support in overcoming challenges. And so I just think it's really important that we keep that innovation front and center despite the fact that we also want to grow the reach of evidence-based practices and do sensitive adaptation for programs that do demonstrate impact. I think that's so important what you're here. You're saying a lot of really key things here to me, but one of them that I really want to highlight for our audience is the fact that it is really important that you believe it is really important. And I, of course, do too, that you are able to apply things in the real world. Am I hearing that correctly? That that's, that that's a key point of what you're moving toward with your research? Yes, we certainly, as we are seeking to grow the reach of our Fostering Healthy Futures program, are really wanting to ensure that, again, it's relevant for whatever context it's being implemented, that we do sensitive adaptations without losing maybe the core elements that are critical, we think, to achieving the outcomes. But at the same time, I want to encourage others through my teaching and mentorship to continue to push the envelope in terms of developing other kinds of interventions they come from a springboard maybe of work that's been done prior, but we don't have an array 
of evidence-based programs that will serve all populations for all kinds of, again, challenges that folks are facing. And so even though I've really spent 20 years developing and now testing through rigorous randomized controlled trials, this intervention, I also want to say, and this is not going to be a fit for everybody. And so we also need other kinds of interventions and we need to do important, I would say, long-term or what we also call longitudinal research to understand um, longer term outcomes and what works for whom and under what conditions, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a one size fits all approach. I really appreciate that. That's right. And within the spirit of breaking down jargon, you know, beyond the yeah. jargon here, I wonder if you could explain to our audience what we really mean or what you really mean when you say evidence-based practice. What does that mean? Yeah. No, it's a great question. Karen, you probably can define it better than I can, but I mean, what are our practices? It doesn't have to be necessarily a program. So Fostering Healthy Futures is a program where we have a mentoring component and a skills training component, but there are practices. For example, motivational interviewing might be a component of Fostering Healthy Futures. Mentoring is a practice, can also obviously be a program. And so there are practices we might engage in that again, have evidence for certain populations under certain conditions as well as evidence-based programs, those that have been demonstrated in some way through rigorous research to achieve the outcomes intended. Fantastic. Thanks, Heather. Now, I mentioned this before, but you have done so many interesting studies. And honestly, I feel like we could devote an episode to each of them. But one I'd really love to dig into today, because it's one of the most interesting to me, has to do with turning points and resiliency. Can you tell us a little bit about that work? Yes, for sure. So one other thing I just wanted to say in terms of the prior question that you asked about, sort of the gist, because this work on turning points comes out of this, is really a focus in our work on positive youth development. And for young people who enter the child welfare system and placed in out-of-home care, we often focus on a lot of challenges that they have experienced and problems that they are currently experiencing. So they may be emotional and behavior problems. We spend a lot less time focusing on their strengths and assets and building on those. And so this work comes out of that positive youth development approach that I think is so important to reduce stigma that's often associated with anybody who's experienced adversity. And so before I jump into talking about this study in particular, I want to acknowledge my co-authors, including two from the UK, from Wales, Louise Roberts and Jonathan Scourfield, who I got to start a collaboration with when I did my Fulbright in Cardiff, Wales, as well as Colette Franz, who was a graduate student and supported all of this work. And so despite the fact that children who have experienced maltreatment and child welfare involvement, again, can demonstrate a lot of challenges. Many, many demonstrate resilience by young adulthood. And so whether it's support of programming, such as Fostering Healthy Futures, support of adults, natural mentors, I'm really interested in what it is that may buffer or ameliorate that impact of adversity in allowing young people to experience resilience by young adulthood. And in looking at the literature, one of those ways is maybe by experiencing a turning point. And a hmm. turning point, I'll just tell you, has been defined by some as a subjective account of lived experience, which involves some degree of change in situation, behavior, or meaning. 
Can I ask you for an example? Like what would be a turning point, say, in your life or in the life of someone that you know? Yeah, I mean, it's such a good question, throwing it back at me. I guess a turning point for me has been in doing this research and really listening to young people's voices. And, you know, in my clinical training, I came in approaching this as, again, there are these evidence-based practices. And if you're going to do clinical work, well, therapeutic work with young people, you need to pick from this menu of programs and implement that with fidelity, which means sticking to the protocol of how that program was developed. And I can't pick one turning point, but in working very closely with young people in out-of-home care, I've really learned to listen to what it is they say they need and to understand that that may be just as or more effective than sort of my book learning in terms of how we support young people. And even the notion of a therapeutic intervention, not having to look like traditional clinical therapy. I love that. That's so powerful and really speaks to, I think it sounds like an evolution in your own work and orientation, but also in the field, just the people are beginning to be open to things like that and to be able to listen to the people in the studies, the people that they're trying to understand more. I love, I love that. What a powerful one. And what are some of the turning points that you saw in some of the people that you talked with in this study? Yeah, well, maybe I can back up just a little bit to tell you about, you know, how this study came to be and why we even asked this question. And so this study is a long, long term, or again, what we call a longitudinal study. And it started back in 2002 here in Denver, Colorado, when we were recruited all nine to 11 year olds or pre-adolescent youth who were living in any type of out of home placement in the Denver metro area. And we actually recruited nine to 11 year olds in out of home care for 10 years. So there were 166 young people in the study that I'm gonna tell you about. And we conducted interviews with them and their caregivers and their teachers all along the way from pre-adolescence into young adulthood. But in young adulthood, we interviewed 18 to 22 year olds. So again, they'd been in this study for a long time. We were able to find and interview 88% of them. So a high retention rate. And it didn't matter whether the young people over the years had aged out of care, for example, been reunified, adopted, or maybe permanently placed with kin. So we had lots of different living trajectories, I might say. And in this young adult interview, after we asked a lot of the more rating types questions, we call quantitative questions, we added a number of open-ended questions at the end. And it was, again, from this experience of working with these young people for so many years. And one of the ones I came up with just really off the top of my head, but it came out of listening to young people talk about turning points, was this question. Thinking back across your entire life and all the experiences you've had, either related to out-of-home care or not, have you ever experienced a major turning point that changed the way you thought about something or how you behaved? If yes, what was that turning point and how old were you when that turning point happened? Wow. So, wow. I'm, I'm at the, I'm honestly, I'm at the edge of my seat here wanting to know what came out from that. That's a great yeah, question. So I will share a couple. I mean, initially with, with my colleagues again in Wales and the student Colette who's working on this we sought to code these qualitative open-ended responses into categories, positive and negative, different types of experiences, but it proved a bit difficult. I'll read one and, and maybe you can see why. So this is a young person's response to that question. Again, it was going to jail and realizing that 
although it was juvenile detention, it wasn't anywhere I wanted to be. And I either needed to change my life and get out of it or continue down the road I was on and end up either in jail or in a casket. So I decided to stray away from that. I was about 17. Mm. When you hear that, Karen, I'll ask you, is that a positive turning point or a negative turning point? Is valence important? Well, clearly, I, I mean, I see what you're saying. This is tricky. I Clearly, going to jail would not be probably anybody's definition of a positive experience. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like what this person did was take a very negative experience and put positive interpretation on it. I think you mentioned that one of the characteristics of turning points is that it's a subjective evaluation, right? Which of course, for our, as our audience may know, subjective means there's no objective kind of measure to it. It's just how you feel or think about something, how you perceive something. And yeah, so to me, it sounds like a negative experience that was interpreted or transformed into a positive event because of the meaning that the person gave to it. Yes. And so we struggled with it, some more challenging than that, to think about both a positive or negative type of coding, as well as whether or not somebody had agency over what happened. Because a death of a loved one, for example, could be a turning point. And and then that wasn't something you maybe had control over, where one might argue you had control over whether or not you graduated from high school, which was another common event, or had contact with the juvenile justice system, et cetera. And so what we did decide to do was just to initially look, and this is where this paper comes out, whether having any type of turning point was impactful, because almost to a young person, their narratives led to something positive. So almost everybody interpreted the question as being a turning point that led to something positive, whether or not it was an event that was negative or positive. Wow. That's so interesting. So you're saying that as long as they could look back on their lives and identify some meaningful event or point, it didn't matter if it was positive or negative, even in their own interpretation. It's just that act in and of itself was enough to have essentially a positive effect or give meaning to their life trajectory. So that's sort of a spoiler alert. Do you want me to tell you the results? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, um, I'm, I'm truly, it's, that is, that yeah. is so interesting. Yeah, to think yeah, about that. So, I'd love, I'd love to know. So then we quantified, essentially, we coded all of these turning points into different types of turning points. We looked at positive and negative, but fundamentally for this first paper, we decided to examine whether or not just the fact of having a turning point could be a buffer to adversity or ameliorate or lessen the impact of adversity. So here's what we did. As I told you, this study was a longitudinal. We interviewed young people at nine to 11 and then at 18 to 22. And so 80% of the participants had one or more turning points, 80%. So that's a very high number. And the average age at which they experienced that turning point was about 16. There was no difference in who had a turning point based on race, ethnicity, gender, type of maltreatment, type of placements they had been in at study entry, 
However, what we did find, and again, I'm really interested in quality of life and well-being. That might be another turning point in my life too, is to think about measures and how we measure things, but that's for another podcast. Um, (laughs) What we found was that those young people who experience more adverse childhood experiences or what we call ACEs, or we can think of it as adversity, overall in the sample, were more likely to have lower life satisfaction or lower quality of life in young adulthood which is really a bummer that these ACEs or adversity measured at nine to 11 leads to less life satisfaction later Mm. on. And of course, you know, there's a chicken egg problem there. What I mean by that is that it might be that if you have lower life satisfaction, even at baseline, at entry to our study, that might lead to you putting yourself in situations or maybe you've experienced more adversity due to racism or your socioeconomic status or your neighborhood, right? And so you may have, lower life satisfaction that leads to circumstances that lead to more adversity. So it could sort of be a chicken egg. But what we do know is that these life events that are experienced early in childhood have long-term associations. We can't say causal. We don't randomize young people to have adverse experiences or not, but they are associated with long-term physical and mental health consequences that are negative. But in this study, Having at any turning point, what we we call, you know, sort of statistically buffered the impact of this early adversity on later life satisfaction. So only young people who didn't have a turning point had that strong relationship between early adversity and later quality of life. Those who experienced a turning point, there was no longer a relationship between early adversity and low life satisfaction later on. That's so interesting to hear. And I'm curious what sense you make of that. What do you think that's about? Why do you think the act of having or at least identifying a turning point made such a difference to to people? No, it's a great question. And of course, that's what we want to harness. We can't prescribe turning points to young people. So (laughs) the question is sort of like, what are the takeaways from this research that we could put into practice? But one of the hypotheses we have is that having a turning point might lead to self-reflection. Hmm. And indeed, um, three quarters of the young people in their narratives that they gave in responding to that turning point question had some mention of maturation or realization. Okay. And so it may be reflection following turning points led people in our study to make meaning of their experiences, whether or not those were events or sometimes internal processes. And then that may have led to hope or optimism. And meaning making and hopefulness have been linked to both turning points and life satisfaction. So that's our best guess is sort of to that mechanism. And again, we can't generate turning points for young people, but as adults who routinely encounter young people, either those without a home care experience or not, for us to understand the importance of turning points in young people's lives and maybe to help support them in reflecting on their lives and the potential impact of turning points could really support young people in identifying their strengths, increasing hopefulness, and making them feel that they have possibilities for the future. That's incredibly insightful work. I'm going to be thinking about this for quite a long time, uh, honestly. The idea that reflection itself, the opportunity for reflection, the orientation toward reflection can itself be an incredible facilitator of resiliency is 
very, very powerful. And it's fascinating to me that it didn't matter if it was a positive event or a negative event that it's, it's not about that. It's the existence of, or at least again, the identification of a turning point. I wonder, Heather, are there, perhaps this is beyond the scope of this particular study, but in thinking about my own life, I don't know that I could identify one key turning point. I think I could identify, I don't know, 10, uh, you know, I mean, it would be hard to really drill down only one moment where my life went one direction uh, as opposed to another. And instead, of course, I'm very, very old at this point, but, you know, as, as my life has taken various twists and turns, um, there are a number of, of turning points. So with from this vantage point, I don't know that I could identify one that was absolutely fundamental, unless that was the very first one, which, you know, from which everything else stemmed. But I say all that because I'm wondering, do you think there's anything about maybe for future studies about the number of turning points? Or did you see any hint of any associations in number? Or was it just either no turning points or some turning points? We only had about 10% of young people identify more than one turning point. So I don't know that we're going to really be able to, and we didn't ask the question in that way, if that makes sense. We just asked, have you ever experienced a turning point and, and let them speak? So I think, first of all, I think the data that we have are really amenable to future investigation. This is sort of, you know, the first paper coming out of this investigation, and I think it will be Actually, we have a second paper, I should say, led by my colleague, Louise Roberts, which is a fully qualitative paper. So mm. looking for themes coming out of this, and I thought it would be too much to discuss today. So I haven't brought that in. But yes, I think trying to understand, again, maybe age of timing point, quality of timing point, I think the positive negative dichotomy is too stark. Because I, again, I don't know, when we look through these turning points, it's hard to decide sometimes what is positive and negative. And we should ask young people, was this a positive turning point or a negative turning point for you? Because they, they're best able to tell us. So I hope that this does spur additional research, not just with care experience populations, but also with other youth and young adult populations in terms of thinking about the importance of turning points. Most of the research has been done in the criminology field in thinking about turning points in terms of desistance or reducing recidivism. But I think turning points can be applied to a lot of different challenges that folks face in growing up. Absolutely. And Heather, I think given what you've just said and the next steps you've identified and all of the other research questions that clearly can stem from this, in addition to the qualitative richness, it sounds like that your study has helped to facilitate and create. We would love to have you back and learn more about this study and many others that you are engaged in because you do such great work. And thank you so much for being a guest today. I learned a lot. And as I said before, I'm going to be thinking a lot about my own turning points, both the ways that they've shaped my trajectory and even more importantly, the meaning that I've given them. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and for this important work that you're doing to bring our research to more people in terms of understanding the process and outcomes. Uh, you're welcome. And thanks to our audience and to NCAN. And, and again, Heather, thank you for being a partner in this important work and, and sharing it with us today.